record now, and then I can edit. Oh, you're a star. Thank you so much. Right. So. Um. Oh, I need the books as well. I'm, I'm a professional. <laughs> I'm not. Okay. My goodness, it's warm in here. It's so hot. Is everyone else feeling it? Yeah, it's not just yeah, me having a... Um, yeah, a moment. And yeah. the one, the windows in the other room open and then shut because it's so windy. Yeah, I came prepared. <laughs> Anyone sitting near Caro is going to get the the benefit of this. I'm going to go ahead and start this. Yes, let's go. Okay, that one's going. Are you doing that one as well? Um, <coughs> yes. Cough all over it. Oh, so sorry. I can do that. One. And my old library copy. Yay. Doesn't want to stand up. Right. There we go. Okay. Sorry, everyone. Are we getting sorted? Okay. Hello, everyone. I'm Ali Baker, she, her an education lecturer and children's fantasy literature researcher at the University of East London. You're listening to Fantasy Book Swap. You're here live at Fantasy Book Swap. Hey! Where a guest and I swap children's fantasy fiction, one classic and one contemporary, and we discuss them. And this is Fantasy Bookshop book swap with a difference because we're live from FantasyCon in Birmingham. Today's guest is Tiffany Angus. Tiffany, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, Hi, so I'm Tiffany Angus. In my official job, I'm Dr. Tiffany Angus. I'm a lecturer in creative writing and publishing at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge, England, not the one where it sounds like I should be from. Uh, my other job is as an author. Um, I my debut, Threading the Labyrinth, came out last year about a haunted garden, and it's awesome. You should all read it if you haven't Thank already. You. And it's on the table in the dealer's room. Uh, so, so you've yeah. got no excuse. <laughs> Got to be checking all your bags later. Make sure you bought it. I wish I could do that. That'd be awesome. <laughs> like like the book Gestapo. <laughs> so um, Tiffany, your choice is the Crystal Cave. Um, by Mary Stewart. Would you like to summarise the plot? Uh, sure. So, The Crystal Cave is the first in, is it a trilogy or a duology? I can I never think remember. It's a trilogy. I think it's a trilogy. It's been a long time since I read them, hence why we're doing this. Um, it is about Merlin. It's the story of Merlin. Merlin's birth, his upbringing, and how he became the Merlin that we all know about from the legends. So, it starts with him um, as a young boy living in his mother's, his mother is the daughter of a king and so he lives with his mother and everybody else but because he's a quote-unquote bastard he doesn't really get any special uh treatment and he's a very kind of an odd child and so he sort of sits back and watches what's going on around him and as he gets a little bit older he starts to to see that things are maybe not as they as they are and he has teachers and he learns a bit more about you know this side's christian this side is a bit more pagan and you still have the influence of Rome. Everybody has Roman names. Mm. I can't remember his name. He um, starts off as Merthyn Endress. That's right. Yes. But... Thank you for pronouncing that, because <laughs> I didn't want to try. 
that's uh, that's my uh, duolingo welsh for you there you go uh, and so he he starts learning more about you know the world around him a little bit um he ends up he he ends up the the king dies and the king's son then wants merlin gone and Merlin realizes what's going on. He knows that things are... I'm spoiling it, but it came out in 1970, so sorry. <laughs> um, so he decides he's going to run away, and they kill his slave. He has his own servant. They kill his slave, and he sets, it on, he sets the room on fire and runs. And when he runs, he gets kidnapped by these other guys who have shown up who are bad guys. So he gets kidnapped and taken away, and they take him on a boat. They take his clothes, and they take him across the water, and on the other side, he escapes. And he's in Brittany now. And he goes to, is it Ambrosius? Yes. Ambrosius. He goes to Ambrosius's camp, and that's when he discovers Ambrosius is his father. Because the, the mystery, mystery of, his, of his parentage has been, like, in the background the whole time. Mm. So he finds out that's his father, and his father raises him the rest of the way as, as his son, but as, like, one of his, his, um, his people. And he knows that Merlin has prophecy. But Merlin doesn't really realize what he says when he says things. So he grows up there, and... Ambrosius becomes king. There's battles. Battles happen. Mm. Uh, and Merlin sees his mother again, and then his mother dies. And then um, Ambrosius's brother is Uther, who we then, then finally we're like, oh, that's somebody familiar. I know about Uther. And Uther does not like Merlin. Mm. Um, and so the end of the book is the, the setup of the coming of Arthur. So it's the stuff that we know of. So a lot of it is, is, is what we don't hear about in the legends mm. until we get to the very end with Ambrosius dies. Uther becomes king. Uther wants Gorlois's wife, and Merlin helps set up that booty call, basically. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. a fifth-century booty call. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what they would have called it in those days. Not a call. Well, it could have been a call, I guess. Would you like to have an uh, an illegal relationship with me? That kind of call. Yeah, yeah. So, um, what, when do you remember first reading it? So I grew up in the desert. I, I'm from L.A. and I grew up in Las Vegas where, you know, nothing is green. And so mm. when I was a kid, I glommed onto fantasy books that were set in England and Ireland and Scotland and Wales mm. that were where history came from in my head. And I, when you asked me to, to pick a book, I had a memory when I was a kid. I was the oldest. And when I was around 12-ish-ish, um, I lived with my mom and my younger sister and sometimes one of my younger half-brothers. And I remember the only place I could really escape to read was outside on top of my mother's van. She had, it sounds, she had like a very 1970s, you know, white van with like the bed in the back and the captain's chairs that we actually took cross country at least once, I remember. And so I would go outside and I would climb up the, the little um, ladder on the back and like lie in the luggage rack on top of the van <laughs> in the middle of the Vegas desert, basically, because we lived like out in the boonies where you could have a horse in your yard, although we didn't have a horse and I was very upset about that and I remember lying up there reading this book and that was so when you asked me I thought what what if I what do I remember from when I was a kid that's not Little House on the Prairie and it was that book so I read that in 1981 ish ish yeah how old were you uh, 11 or 12 yeah right yes because I do remember seeing this book in my local library but for some reason I think it was the size of it really put me off reading it it's a real big old book. I, I didn't remember that when I picked it for this. <laughs> no, so no, I, it's, it's great. I loved it. I love reading it now as an adult, but I, it was, I was really put off by it as a teenager. 
because I, I think it was definitely in the adult section of the library, so I wouldn't have been allowed to read it by the librarians until I was about 13 or 14. Yeah, isn't yeah. that funny? Because it's, I mean, he's a kid through so much of it, and he's yeah. a teenager through so much of it. But he, you know, there's no booty call for Merlin. Um, no. And, and, the, and the stuff with Uther happens at the, just the very, very end, so you don't really have mm. any sex. There's not really a lot of violence. Not, no, not, not like not. in your face. Yeah. <laughs> until the until the booty call. Yeah. We're gonna say booty call all the way through your children's fantasy swap. <laughs> Kids, ask your parents. <laughs> yeah. So so it's interesting that it was in your library for grown-ups when yeah. in my head it's a book for kids because he's a kid. Yeah. And and that I think brings to mind that whole gray area of what's YA, what's not, mm-hmm. what's for grown-ups, what's for kids. Yeah. So, I th- uh, yeah, I think so. Um, one of the things I really noticed while I was reading it was how much it reminded me of Robin Hobb um, and her Assassin's Apprentice books. It's quite, I think, you know, the fact that, that Merlin is illegitimate, the fact that, Merl- um, that he's kind of this slightly strange boy who's kept away from... Um, the rest of the royal household because he has a, a cu- someone he calls his cousin um, Dinas, D- Dinius Dinius yeah. yeah who is also um, illegitimate but he's the king's son yeah. and he because he's a bit of a bruiser and you know a bit of a, it's a bit of a bully a bit of a bully yeah. he's 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 not rejected by his father he is acknowledged by yeah. the king um and um yeah that that's sort of everyone's sort of either trying to get merlin on side or kill him is yeah. one, one of the things that reminded me of of bits from um the uh assassin's apprentice books what do you think it was about the book that engaged you well, you know it, as a as a kid <laughs> growing up in las vegas in the desert where nothing grows mm-hmm. And, and not having, you know, the oldest things in Vegas are from the 1960s. And even those are gone now. A lot of the hotels and stuff are gone. So houses weren't old. Nothing was old. And so as a kid, history came from here. I saw Excalibur when I was like 12. <laughs> Talk about booty call at the beginning. Yes. <laughs> so so in, that's how, like, the, you know, the, the legends and the history of, of Britain, basically, was what I thought of as, Ooh, those are old. That's fantasy. That's that's the cool stuff to be to be into. Mm-hmm. And so that's what engaged me about it was that it took place here. It was far away from where I was. It was completely different from from my home life, etc. Mm-hmm. You know, things were green and they grew, and there were no, knights and swords, and there was all the stuff that wasn't nearby. And then mm-hmm. it's so funny because when I talk to people and they find out where I'm from. They're like, ooh, that's amazing, and it's all weird and fantastic. And I'm like, it's slot machines at 7-Eleven. It's not that big of a deal. (laughs) You know, one person's weird is another person's normal. And so that engaged me in reading it this time. I just really um, sort of got engaged with how it was put together and how what we think of, and and I I don't use a royal we, I use a we meaning, I guess, maybe Americans. What we think of when we think of the King Arthur tales and what this told me and reminded me of were so completely different. Mm. I had forgotten it was about Merlin as a kid. I like completely blanked that out. And so it was so interesting to go back and look at that and to look at how, how it sh- 
I call it shining on, how it shines some things on. There's there's stuff that I expected to be on the page, but it sort of happens off screen. Like, mm. the, we'll get to the magic later, where it's, it happens, but you don't really get to see it. Yeah. And so I think that was really, it was interesting from this perspective now to look at it and see how it was put together. Mm. And to see what choices Mary Stewart made. Did you remember it as a first-person narrative? Yeah, I think I did remember it as that. Yeah. So, because I was so into it when I was 12. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's that, that, you know, Little House in the Prairie. I think Little House might be third person, though. I haven't read that again since I was a kid. Yes, it is third It person. is third yeah. person. But I really, I always liked first person narratives when I was, when I was younger. I still like them now. I know a lot of people don't. And so, yeah. But I still hadn't remembered that it was all about Merlin as a kid. Isn't that funny? It's really Just weird. gone. So did, you were thinking about the bits when he's in Brittany and then when he comes back to Wales as an adult? Forgot all of it. I just knew Merlin, like, and I still, it, the things that I remembered are the things that we in the States think of when we think of Merlin. Like, mm. I had just blanked a lot of it. So I don't know if a lot of that is time because it's been a while since 1982. <laughs> or if it's my memory or if it's just because all the other stuff from the legends took over and, and you know, late, like, pushed all the rest of it down so it was like reading a brand new book yeah because it's been that long it is i think it's um i think it's very fresh considering it is you know over 40 years ago that it was was written 1970 yeah yeah the year i was born i didn't realize that i looked when it was when it was published and i was like oh (laughs) well that was interesting that i picked that yeah Yeah. well i think it is um it's fascinating that it is such a a fresh narrative. It, it doesn't read yeah. like, you know, an old book. And because that, that was one of the, I mean, Mary, Mary Stewart's writing career was um, started in the, she started writing in the 50s, I think, 40s or 50s, maybe. So yeah, it wasn't one of her first books, but it's, and also one of the, I don't think I would have picked up reading at the time was the amount of sexual danger that Merlin is in. It, yeah, a yeah. lot of the time there is there are places where he he you know he says on the page that he wondered whether Ambrosius had wrote was um, followed other Roman customs when he was put to yeah. sleep in in his room, and there are other parts like that where where he knows that that he is there is a possibility that he could become raped. He could get raped. But it's so it's so subtle that yes. I don't... This is not me saying kids are stupid, but I don't know if certain kids would even pick up on it because it is so subtle that even as an adult, you yeah. read it and you're like, is she saying that? I'm not sure. Yes, and he, she uses the word catamite at one point. <clears throat> That's right. That yeah. word comes up a couple times because they argue that... He, that they people say that he's Ambrosius's catamite. Yes, because Ambrosius is not because Uther Uther sleeps with everybody who walks basically with every woman. Mm-hmm. But Ambrosius is chill about that. But there's always young men because they always have like slaves and, and servants around. Mm. Yes, so that that sort of I don't think I would have known the word catamite as a child. But I was I was a child who really liked looking things up in dictionaries. <laughs> so there's an awful lot of words <coughs> that I say. That I don't know whether I'm pronouncing them properly because I've never heard them in real life, and I have to look look them up. How do you think? You mentioned, of course, that your your own um, threading the labyrinth is about uh, a very old English manor house and garden, and 
the kind of time slip narrative that happens within that walled garden. Do you think that this book influenced your own writing? Yeah. I mean, it had to have, even though I didn't really remember it, going back and revisiting it, I realized, oh, this this and these sorts of books really did like get their claws into me as a kid. Um, when I was finishing threading, this was several years ago because I wrote it for my PhD, I was finishing it up and I was talking to one of my supervisors. And I was finishing the 2010 section, which was the last section that I finished writing, but it's the frame story for it now. And I said to her, I said, it was, it was Una McCormick, and I said, um, so I'm looking at this and she's kind of like me. And Una goes, yeah, I was wondering when you would figure that out. <laughs> so, I, so all that stuff that I would read about England and about Ireland and Scotland, et cetera, about, about the Isles and about Britain, um, and all that legend and all the idea of time and this is where history lives, obviously influenced mm. me. Cause I even, I came, I came here to do a PhD, obviously. Because I I got this idea of writing about an English garden, and this is where they exist, and so I had to come here and do it. Because I couldn't tap into that without being in them, and I couldn't tap into their their hold on time and their influence on time and how time influences them. So, yeah, I would say that this totally, in some way, even invisibly influenced threading. Just like Little House is influencing the book I'm working on now. Yeah. Although I'm although I remember that a lot more, so I, I acknowledge it, but now I feel like I need to go back and thank Mary Stewart a bit for like thank you for putting this idea in my head when I was twelve and you know, leaving it there for a while. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's I I'm one of the reasons why I research children's fantasy literature and one of the reasons why obviously I'm doing this podcast is because I think that um your the stories that you read as a child get really get into your bones. They really do, and they make you learn and think about things in different ways, and that changes your life irrevocably. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's just it's just like anything that you go through when you're a kid. Is I don't know how many of you you have that experience when you hit a certain age, and then you remember something from when you were a kid, and you have a like personal therapy moment where you realize, oh, that really screwed me up, or that really <laughs> did this thing to me. And that's I'm not saying this book screwed me up, but. <laughs> As I laid on top of my mother's van in our driveway reading it. Um, yeah, so it, it, it definitely, these things leave their mark. They leave their crumbs. It's like Hansel and Gretel going through your mind and leaving crumbs of stuff. And later on, some of us end up using it, and I luckily used it. Because here's where history came from for me, Yeah, basically. Yeah, I think about where I used to read as a child. Um, my parents were very pro-reading. Pro but not when it was really inconvenient. <laughs> and I used to hide under my bed <laughs> and put the book I was reading, push it out from my bed and, and read. It's no wonder I wear glasses, really. <laughs> but that, that's, you know, where, when my mum my wanted me to actually go to sleep or, you know, when there were chores to do or whatever, I would go and hide under the bed. Yeah. Um, I hope my parents don't listen to this book. <laughs> my mum would lock us out in the backyard so we'd go play and I just wanted to stay inside and read. Yeah, hide books outside is another one. Totally. Yeah. So my choice was um, Why I Went Back by James Clammer, who, although I'd never met him, he is my husband's friend. My husband went to university with him. And they, they and he turns out to be living in the same town as my, um, my stepson's mum, which is very, very odd. But there you go. England is a small place. Yes. Um, So I'm going to read the blurb on the back of this. 
those scumbags, my bike, how could they take it? I needed that bike. I needed it to stop all the bad things that were happening from us to us from getting any worse. Early morning, Aidan Hale's bike has just been stolen. It's not any old bike, though. It's the bike that he uses to deliver all the mail that his postman dad's been hoarding ever since his mum was sectioned. But when Aidan catches up with the thieves at their hideout, he finds they have more than stolen goods stashed away. There's a mysterious prisoner, an old man, chained to the floor, and he needs help. Aidan's only got moments to grab the bike and escape. This is the story of why he goes back. What did you think about um, this book? It was so it was so unexpected. I didn't know what to expect when we did the swap. And you said, ooh, this book will go thematically. And I started reading it, and I'm like, this has nothing to do with King Arthur and Merlin and all that stuff. You know, it's a kid who's basically helping out his dad because his mother's been, like you say, mother's been sanctioned, and his dad has just fallen apart. Mm-hmm. And he becomes the responsible, what is he, 13? Mm-hmm. I think. Or 14. Yeah, yeah, he becomes like super responsible. He's kind of a bully, though. Mm. In real life. In real life. <laughs> in, in his other job, he's a bully. Um, so I did not expect it. But where it went, and where it went was so unexpected. And I think that's where you twigged, ooh, okay, these two things mm-hmm. go together. Because I would never have put them together. Yeah, it's the the old man that Aidan finds chained up in the house is an Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, um, I can't who think has his name? Hacksmith. Yeah, yeah, and he is um, <coughs> he's a thief, like Aidan. Yeah, is a thief, and uh, he's he has to um, guard this treasure that has been that was stolen from uh it's like a, a grail sort of myth um that but he he's had to stay on earth since the fifth century in order to to look after this treasure he's like the guy in indiana jones he is in the third one the fourth one doesn't exist yeah yeah <laughs> he, he's that guy and, yeah. he, and he was guarding it and somehow these 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 kids like like tracky bottoms with the, with the bikes those kids yeah. one of them they kidnap him mm. you never find out from where and mm. and they steal him and they have him tied up until he tells them where the rest of the stuff is. Yeah, because he has um a piece of it. He has a like a buckle. Yeah, yeah, a chain, uh, a, a bracelet with a buckle. Yeah, on it. yeah. That, that that he gives them. That he gives um Aiden and and is his name Douglas? What's the little kid's name? Daniel. Daniel. Yeah, yeah. they end up with it. Yeah, and so it, he never says here's where I'm from and here's what happened. You put it together because. We watched Indiana Jones, basically. <laughs> yes, and Aidan is studying the Anglo-Saxons in his history lessons. Right, he's reading Beowulf. He's reading Beowulf. Yeah. Yes, so it's um, it is a very I, I it's um, this is James Clamour's first novel. His second novel, which is an, a novel for adults, has was published earlier this year to very very great acclaim. Steve, what's his? Insignificance. Insignificance, that's it. And it's about a day in the life of a plumber. So it's quite <coughs> different from, from this book. But the kind of, it's a very kind of realistic story, but with this aspect of, of mystery and um, this aspect of um, fantasy. Yeah, it's like this, this traveller in time, but it, except he's been travelling around through time because he can't go anywhere. He's, he's, yeah, stuck. he's stuck. And and you get this, 
the the juxtaposition of Aiden and his dad's a postman and his mother's you know in the in in a mental institute. Yeah, she's in a, a sort of um, what's it's called Trevega House. It's it's uh, obviously some kind of psychiatric hospital. Yeah. yeah, and so this juxtaposition of that up against this mysterious man who never explains where he's from and never explains why he's there and never explains how old he really is. Mm. And it, it's that, it's that weird, you know, that weird split between here and now and that other side where things that were, where even us in the room, we think, and we hope like there's that other, there's that other side. There's that border between now and our history and our fantasy and all the things that mm-hmm. we find fascinating. And so I think that's what really worked about the book was you're totally engaged with this kid and his problems and his dad. Now he delivers mail every morning before school. And then you're totally engaged with trying to figure out where this guy came from and mm. what he's doing. And so both stories, I never got that thing where I'd get bored with one story and hope to get back to the other story. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think, um, I mean, he is, James Clam is a very compelling writer. They're both first person narratives as well. That was the other, the other thing that, yeah. that kind of struck me. It's very much told from Aidan's perspective. But he is very honest about himself and his shortcomings as a a human. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you you get the idea at the beginning that he's he doesn't wallow in being a bully, but he's a bully, and he has he he, this is how it is. And as you start to uncover what's going on in his family, you find yourself as a grown up having such sympathy for him because you think, no wonder you're doing this. Like your father's not taking care of you, and your mother's not there at all, and so. It makes sense that you're bullying this younger kid for lunch money because you don't have any money to buy lunch. You don't have any food in the house because your dad doesn't shop. And you're exhausted because you're getting up at 4 a.m. every day to go deliver mail. And so, yeah, you, f- you feel for this kid, and he knows he's kind of a jerk. Yeah. Yeah, he's, but, but it is what it is. It's like, it's, it's, like a, it's like that tough love to yourself. Well, this is what I have to do. Yeah, he's, he's at what he has to do in order to survive. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of do find do feel sympathy with him even though he you th- I mean I I used to teach in in schools before I came out became a university lecturer and I often think to myself I've taught kids like you I know what you are like I can imagine how absolutely awful it would be to have you in my class <laughs> even though I would feel sympathy for you but yeah you, you're not particularly pleasant <laughs> young man in many ways both of the books have absent mothers we mentioned yeah. that um Aidan's mom has been sectioned she is schizophrenic I had forgotten that she's had schizophrenic episodes before this is not a new thing she's been in hospital a couple of times before but because she is so heavily medicated even when Aidan goes to visit her she can't engage with him because of the amount of medication that she's on. She's sort of very absent yeah. in, even though she's physically there when he's in, in visiting her in the room, her, her mind is elsewhere. And um, Nini Ann, um, Merlin's mother, is also absent, <coughs> isn't, isn't she? <coughs> Sorry. Okay. My allergies are really bad, so it's not. I took a test yesterday. It's just allergies. Um, yeah, yeah. So. Nian is, she's there physically, but she's, because of Merlin being, because of his fatherhood being questionable, because of the king being who the king is, yeah, the mother is just sort of floating in the background. 
She embroiders. She hangs out with her ladies. She wants to go be a nun. Mm. And her father won't let her go. And so she's just kind of diminished. Mm. Yeah, she does come back <coughs> at one point <coughs> and tells a story about um, Merlin's fatherhood, who his father could be. I mean, the, all, the Merlin knows and the readers know that it's Ambrosius, but she makes up a story about this fairy knight who might also yeah. be a devil. Yeah, yeah. Which actually ends up putting Merlin in, in quite a lot of danger. Yeah, because she, she won't say, because at the very beginning of the book is them waiting for this other man, he's a duke or he's a count or he's whatever he is, to come and marry her because the father wants her married off. Because she's not that old. She had Merlin when she was like 17-ish, 16-ish. Mm. So she's in her early 20s at the beginning of the book. And she refuses to marry this man. And so, yeah, she she makes up this story. And the story could either be a fairy knight or it could be the devil or it could be some other spirit. Because she just, she wants to go be a nun, basically. And you never, I never, I just felt so bad for her that, you know, she never got to see her boyfriend again. Um, and, yeah. and, and that her only options were either marry somebody my father picks for me and I don't want to be with them because I don't love them. Or go be a nun. Mm. Although I think being an nun for a, a woman at, at, in the fifth century was probably a pretty good deal. You, you don't yeah. you don't die in childbirth, you know. True. Yeah, you that's a good point. You, you you have you're not you're not um, you're living in a community of women. There's no danger to you from the dangerous men that are around. So I think hopefully, hopefully, yeah. yeah. So I think she, I think being, I'd much rather be in, have been a nun in, in fifth century Britain than anything else. Well, I think also him placing her as being so religious and so, um, so much wanting to go live the religious life sets up the coming and the strength of Christianity in the book as well. Yes. Because there's that up against, um, I can't remember his name, but one of the king's men, uh, Merlin sees sees them, follows them, and there's a, um, a, a, a ritual. Could not think of the word ritual. Yes. There, there's a ritual. They have the robes on and, and the whole thing. And he actually, at one point, very early after he gets kidnapped and he escapes and he's cold and he's wet and he doesn't have any clothes, and he finds this little farmhouse and he goes and sits in with the horses, the animals, because it's warm. Um, he doesn't know it's Uther. Uther shows up and leaves his horse and goes inside. And so Merlin eats what's in the, the baggage and he takes the cloak and he puts it on for a bit. And while he's there, he looks out and he sees this field and he sees this whole image of a white bull mm. and a man walking up and like uh, uh, sacrificing the bull. And Uther shows up and Merlin is still having this image. And so there's just the crash of his mother and wanting to be a nun and still the remnants of, you know, pagan um, rituals and pagan, pagan ways. And so mm. I think that's what was really interesting about it, too, was all those those things crashing together and like really rubbing up against each other really difficultly yeah. through Merlin. There's three religions in the book. There's Christianity, there's Mithra, Mithraism. Mithra, yeah. Yeah, Mithras, the, the, um, the soldier, Roman soldiers god. And there's yeah. also Druidism. Yeah. So I think it's Belsarius. Belsarius? That guy, yeah. Yes. That, that guy. That guy. <laughs> I yeah. remember his name. Who is um, Merlin's tutor, who is a Druid. Yeah. And wants Merlin to become a Druid. Although he he does resist becoming a druid, but it's so uh, it that's very interesting as well because you know when you're a child and you're learning about history, you sort of get in your mind that 
everyone just stopped doing that thing. You know, <laughs> that, that, that stopped. And another thing started, you know, basically after the Romans left Britain, Britain was basically empty. And then the Anglo-Saxons came. And that's sort of how I understood history as a child. It took me ages to realise that, you know, when the Ed, when Edward VII came to the throne, that didn't mean that a whole new load of people who used to be the Victorians, you know, they didn't all just disappear and then the Award, yeah. Edwardians showed up. So things do, you know, there's, there's much more of a kind of lots of different aspects of Roman life is still there. For example, they have baths still. Yeah, because when, at the very beginning of the book too, when Merlin's little, he goes up underneath the floors where, where the, the heating system was for the baths. And he would, he would be down there playing because nobody wanted to play with him because he was the weird bastard child. But he would listen to the grown-ups' conversations yeah. so he would know what was going on. And it, it, funnily enough, it reminded me, it, uh, that part of it reminded me of the show Vikings, which we are five episodes from the end, so do not spoil it, anybody. Mm-hmm. My, my partner and I have been binging the Vikings. And there are um, parts of it where the, the Vikings, the, the, the Norsemen, they leave Norway and they end up in England. And the, the king there has this, you know, this villa that the Romans had had. Mm-hmm. And he has all these, these like, fro- uh, frescoes on the walls. And he has a bath and he likes to hang out in the bath. But there's like frescoes and there's, there's paintings and there's sculptures and there's stuff. And he doesn't know what any of it means. Yeah. And so it's so interesting that he's like, this is the place to where we're supposed to live. This is the fancy thing. I don't know who built it. I don't know where it came from. And I just thought, how, how did you not know? How did the stories not come down? But that's because of what everything that, that happened and all of the, the strife in between the yeah. one step to the next. So, yeah, you have the stuff left behind and nobody yeah. to tell the story. So the, the history teacher in why I went back um, is explaining why there isn't, you know, there isn't so much of knowledge about what happened after the Romans left because of Romans loved writing and wrote everything down. But but the British people, people who became British, who stayed um, afterwards, some of them were Romans, but a lot of them didn't know how to read and write. And and they're what they what survives of them is is a lot of it is is artwork and jewelry and so on and rather than um lots of lots of writing the way there was under the romans and it is that's very interesting i i thought and that's why that we have i can never remember his name but the man who's lived for thousands of years that's why he's there he's that continuation of the story that's not been written down Mm. With yeah. him, with his himself, and the things that he carries, and the gold that he's been that he's been. So he's, yeah, he's sort of like a character from Beowulf. Yeah, that's just come to life, just come to. Life. And yeah. Aiden happened to find him. Yes, and, and set him free from Christie and the bad guys. Which and you never and that was one of the cool things about the book. You never have that um, that very formulaic thing where the um, uh, Aiden and Daniel are running and they're trying to save the guy. They're trying to get him where he needs to go. And you never have the moment where Christy and the bad guys show up and they have a big fight at the end. It yeah. doesn't happen. Sorry to spoil it. It doesn't happen. And it was, I was so happy that it didn't happen because those guys didn't matter to the story. No. They just, they're, they're going to go off and, and, you know, hold up a 7-Eleven or do whatever they're going to do. Yeah. They didn't matter to Aiden's story. Exactly. So the magic systems yeah. within the books, I've, I found really interesting that, um, what Merlin experiences, which is um, he sees visions, he hears voices, 
But in why I came, why I went back, that's what got, has got um, Aidan's mum sectioned. So yeah. what, we, what is thought of, seen as uh, magic in modern times could very well be seen as, you know, responding to unseen stimulation. <laughs> yeah, what was interesting is, so there's no magic systems the way we think of as magic systems in fantasy. There's no system. It's wild. It's wild mm. magic. And yeah, so in, in uh, Crystal Cave, so it's called the Crystal Cave because at one point Merlin goes, and I've forgotten his name again because it's another Roman name. Galapas? Yes, thank you. You're so good with the names. And I've forgotten all of them. Um, there's a cave that the man lives in and, and Merlin goes to him and learns a lot of things from him. And part of the cave, it was, it's difficult to picture it, but there's a little offshoot and it's full of crystal. Like it's, and he's very taken by it. It's, it's this very mysterious thing. And he hides mm-hmm. there at one point. Um, and it, it's coming. I think we're going to go back to that in the next book. So in there, yeah, Merlin, um, um, passes on these prophecies, but he never really remembers them. He blanks out basically and then when he comes to he asks his his servant um cattle 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 he said what did i say i don't remember what did i say and, and he'll say oh what, what you said the king really liked what you said he's like but what did i say i don't know and so there's quite often these moments where any sort of magic that happens happens without us the readers seeing it and understanding it and we get it like second and third hand there are a few moments, though, as Merlin gets older, he's like, yeah, this is going to happen. Yeah, I, I saw this happen. I know this. So even then, we still are never with him when he knows mm. that his mother has died or he knows that, it, that Ambrosius has died or everybody dies. That <laughs> He knows these things. And so it's all very wild. It's very out of his control. And he always um, puts it down to the gods or he says the god because he never, he never acknowledges a, a Christian god that way. And so what I loved about why I went back was suddenly at the end, you have this wild magic come back that it's been underneath the surface all this time. And it is never explained. It's not expected. It's not explained. It's all very visual and very odd. And then it's gone. And when it leaves, you feel like all magic has left the world. Mm. And it all just, I feel kind of bad for like Aiden and Daniel. They never get any explanation. They've seen this thing. They can't ever tell anybody. And now life is back to postman and sectioning and they they lose out on all the the cool stuff yeah i mean that haxford does leave aiden's family um reunited and better um but yeah there there are still repercussions for things that have gone on within the book um and and it is uh sort of it's not a kind of happily ever after ending. It's things are okay for now ending. Yeah, yeah. You very much get the idea that it's all very precarious. And one moment, everything can kind of fall apart again. But Aiden, being a bit older and experiencing what he experiences with the man and with his father and with his mother, he's much more open about stuff. He's not as closed down as much as a bully. The kid he bullies in the beginning becomes his best friend. But then that kid's going to get sent to another school, and so Aiden will be alone again, but he will have experienced this, and so hopefully realizes that, that, he, was, that he wasn't very nice. It, yeah. it, was his, it was his learning moment, basically. Exactly. But I do love how, how the magic is wild magic, and it's, it's very much couched in that mm. you know, Celtic wildness of, we, we don't know how this works, we are only human. Mm. But it works, and okay. Do we have any questions from the audience? Yes. Yeah, I was, I was wondering if Mary Stewart writing 
situation might change? What difference it might make living in the world right now? So um, that question was, what do we? Th- if Mary Stewart was writing this book now, what do we think she might have changed? That's a really good question, and I'm going to have to take a moment. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder. I mean. I don't know if there's been historical um, discoveries or archaeological discoveries since 19 um, since 1970. I know there have been, but I don't know if there's been any that would have affected our understanding of that time period that maybe would have changed. I don't know if there's different understandings of the religions during then that would have changed it. Um, I'm hoping not because I I love how it's everything is layered together. What do you think? I wonder whether. Um... I wonder whether she would be a bit more open about other sexualities ah. because the what she says about um, you know the, the sexual danger that I said before it's it's kind of um, homosexuality is seen as quite a negative thing so I think she might possibly have viewed I mean I think Merlin being in sexual Danger is quite an interesting. It, it puts an, another edge on. He might get murdered. He might get sexually assaulted. There is a lot of uh, danger around Merlin. But I wonder whether she might have had uh, a wider range of sexualities and more positive, more positive spin on sexuality in general. Yeah, that's a good point. And even his experience with Carrie, because there's a girl at the nunnery where his mother is, mm. that he has that like instant attraction to. And then later he sees her, and they fall down on the grass together, and then he says no, and she very much um, yells at him. And so I wonder if that would have been rewritten in a way that didn't make it like Merlin was doing the I must remain chaste to keep my magic, and would have been more like, this is what a 17-year-old boy feels like when all this stuff happens. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or you know, t- to make him asexual, that Possibly. would be another possibility. But yeah, yeah, rather than sex as being seen as only dangerous, yeah, yeah, because it is only dangerous the whole time. Yeah, even even setting up the whole thing with Uther and um, Gorlois's wife, um, I don't know whose name I Igrain, even that is like you know they they do all this cloak and dagger to get Uther to his booty call, but everybody dies. It's just yeah. it's just. There are there are there is payment for it. Uther doesn't die, and then we know ahead of time that Arthur is coming. And it's even said in the book like Uther never sees the child. The child is born. He's given to Merlin, and that is it. Mm. So sex never results in anything nice in this book, yeah, <laughs> at all. And that was a weird thing too. Narratively, the, those moments where um, he meets Dinius again, and. They have a moment, and then there's a little paragraph that said, and then Dinius went away, and blah, 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 and he, then he died. Mm. Like, we get this weird epilogue on certain characters, yeah. and we know they're never going to show up again in the next book. Mm. Which is interesting. And, of course, uh, when, when Dinius and Merlin meet up again, it's in a pub, a, a tavern, which is also a brothel. Yeah. So, again, sex and death. Sex and death, yeah. And he's trying to get Dinius to go off and have some fun so he can go do something else yeah. to talk to his mother. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, sex. Basically, the answer is we'd hope she'd write differently about sex. (laughs) Do we have any other questions? Yes, husband. (laughs) Thank you, wife. Um, Have you seen the film Excalibur? Yeah, I saw it when I was 12. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking it came out the same year that you were reading. Yeah. This. Behold um, the sword of power. And, and did you? Burn, did you still... <laughs> it's young. Burn beast number one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, did, and did you recognise any elements of Crystal Cave that it looked like Orman picked up for his? visuals in the film such as a crystal cave i don't remember like thinking about it now because i'm not sure if i read the book before the movie and really the stuff from the movie that is like in my brain is the booty call and because we all remember that and i was 12 and i was like wow people are doing it on tv um (laughs) i remember i remember that and i remember like morgan i remember all the weird stuff with that and in my head there's a lot of lens flare and so now you ask that, I think, is it like that because he was trying to do the thing with the crystal, like trying to make everything look kind of shiny and odd? I would have to go back and watch it again. I haven't seen it in forever and ever and ever. So I don't know. I don't know. Steve actually showed me the film yeah. uh, when we first reunited, and yet I still married him. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, was, it was a test. <laughs> it's, it's one of those films that we love. We know... You know, standing back, we're like, okay, there's some issues with the film, but we still love it. Like Highlander, you know, there's those movies that we as a generation, nobody can say anything bad about it because we will see you outside. Excalibur, Highlander, I can't wait to see The Green Knight. I'm dying to see The Green Knight. No, this is why we're going to need to do another another chat via Skype when we've both seen The Green Knight. Finally, because for whatever reason, and that was something interesting we talked about last night, that how come, oh, time's up, we have to go in two seconds. How come filmmakers here have not, like, gone wild and crazy with the King Arthur myths and done their own sort of MCU of the King Arthur myths? Like, they're there. Why, yeah. why aren't we seeing more movies of them? I, I really, really love, um, I, and I absolutely adore Merlin, the TV show, Merlin, and I, I think it's great. We need more. Yes, we do. Okay, well, Tiffany, very quickly then, where can people find you and your projects online? Um, online, my website has all sorts of stuff. Um, there's links online to podcasts. There's links online to buy my books and to find my stories. And I am all over Twitter all the time and Facebook. And I try, I try to blog. I'm not very good at blogging all the time. But if you look up my name, I'm the only, one of the only people on the planet with my name spelled that way. So I'm easy to find. Yeah. Okay. So thank you for listening to episode six of Fantasy Book Swap. You can find us on Twitter at Fantasy Swap, Facebook at Fantasy Book Swap, or email Fantasy Book Swap at gmail.com. You can subscribe in your favourite podcast places or download from Podbean. Thank you to Steve Vapor Trails for production assistance and Jack Sadler Johnson for the use of his beautiful track, Bliss. Until next time, bye! bye.